0: Good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning, and uh, we have been going through a C- our series, Faith and Doubt, going through the life of Abraham. And so, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter twenty-one. That's where we're going to be uh, today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you you can you can download a free one called YouVersion on your on your smartphone uh, or smart device or whatever that looks like. So, I encourage you to do that. Um, you know, I was it was interesting. I was like, I was like, oh. Julia must be gone because we don't have an electric guitarist. And then I realized that she was playing drums. And uh, I'm so thankful that we have such gifted musicians that can do that kind of thing. I, I don't know how I can barely manage to sort of kind of play one instrument, not, not to mention two or three. But uh, anyway, so thankful for our worship team and, and leading us in worship. Uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm certain a lot of you have heard about this scandal, these, um, a whole bunch of people, uh, a couple of them pretty famous Celebrities, Lori Loughlin being one of them, from was it Full House? Is that what it was? She's from Full House, right? And uh, and 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 they've been kind of in this scandal where they've uh, bought basically uh, admissions into uh, elite colleges for their children, paying uh, in some cases millions of dollars. As a matter of fact, one in one case there was a teenage girl who did not play soccer but magically became a soccer star recruit at Yale. Uh, the cost to her parents is $1.2 million. Can you imagine that? That's crazy, right? And uh, so she got a soccer scholarship, but she didn't play soccer. Another one was a high school boy eager uh, to enroll at the University of South Carolina, uh, was falsely deemed to have a learning disability so he could take a standardized test with a complicit proctor uh, who would make sure he got the right score. The cost to his parents, at least $50,000. Yeah, right? Of course, uh, you know Lori Laughlin and uh, and she bought enrollment. I can't remember which school that that her her daughter went to, but but there was um, but there was it was a school whatever, and, and she was actually I guess she has a bunch of Twitter followers or something, and she was on Twitter you know talking about how how she thinks school's dumb, but she likes to party and all this kind of stuff. After her mom had paid millions of dollars in order to get her into the school, it's pretty crazy. There's been a new term to talk about this kind of parenting and I don't, I don't know if you have heard this term, it was kind of new to me, but it's called snowplow parenting. Have you, have you heard, of, heard of this term? It's snowplow parenting, and basically it's, it's this. It's the snowplow clears the way of everything in life that might be an obstacle for, for their children, so that their children can kind of just sail through life without, without, without any problem, right? It's kind of like on that storm a while ago here in in Colorado, and if you were behind the snowplow, at least you knew, know, knew the, the uh, road would be clear, right? You could just kind of go behind them, and uh, I, of course, I'm always the one trying to get out in front of them, but, um, but for many of you, you probably find comfort in just following them and, and going, the road's going to be clear. And so they've come up with this new term, it's snowplow parenting, and I don't know how it differs really exactly from what they used to call helicopter parenting, right? Is that is that was the, the previous term, and I'm not sure how, exactly how it's different from that, um, but this is what the New York Times is now calling uh, snowplow parenting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. The parent, the idea is the parent removes all the obstacles, obstacles for the kids. And I, I got to admit, as a parent myself, um, you know, there's been times where I've been tempted to do this kind of parenting, not so much the $1.2 million thing. Um, that would, that check would bounce higher than the moon, you know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, but this idea of, of removing obstacles for our kids and uh, even when we moved here to Lakewood, uh, you know, one of our, our get-daughter-into-college our, our get through into college plan was for my wife to work at CCU. And we did that and, and, and kind of provided that way for her. Now, there was nothing illegal or immoral about that, just so we're clear. It was completely legit. She just got a job at CCU. That's all we did. But, um, but there is that sense of, of, of wondering, you know, am I actually doing my kids any favors or am I, or am I harming them? Am I, am I hurting them by not allowing them to go through some difficult things, to try to figure out some hard things in life? You know, maybe, maybe it would have been better if I'd have made her pay for her own college like I had to pay for my college. You know, it, it, would that have been better for her instead of clearing the way? And I think about this in light of, of Abraham and his life and his spiritual life, especially with God, as, as God brought him out of Ur and, and he's gone on this big, long journey with God. And God promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 that I will make you know, your, your, your children many. You're, you're going to become this great nation. You're going to have this great people, and he goes through, and and over and over again, he finds himself in this situation where there's an obstacle, and God, a lot of times, it looks like God's not even present, like when he went down to Egypt, right, he was worshiping God in in, in the promised land, kind of doing the the divine surveying of the land that God was going to give him, and then he leaves because there was a drought, and all of a sudden, there's this disconnect, he's not worshiping God anymore, There's, there's no longer this connection, this relational connection as he's in Egypt. It looks almost as if God abandons him, but really, as I began to think about it, it's more like God the Father letting Abraham, his his chosen one, his his son, if you will, his adopted son, sort—not the divine eternal son. Okay, make it the distinction, right? Okay, so I don't want you to tell you know I want emails saying you're preaching heresy. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you know, kind of in that adopted way. Here's this. Here's God's adopted, if you will, son, and he's kind of making some choices that aren't so good. So God says, okay, I'm going to let you learn. I'm going to let you go through the struggle, go through the hurt, go through the sorrow. And over and over again, it seems like this is kind of what God does with Abraham. And I think oftentimes it's what God does with us. And it might be, as parents, what we should sometimes do with our own kids if God is the perfect father, amen? amen. But but back to this text. <laughs> it's interesting as we look at this because it's been a long time. He called him out of Ur and he's getting older and he's getting older and again and again there's kind of this God, you know, we're getting old. What are you going to do? Where are all these, you know, where are these descendants that you've promised? Where's this great nation? Where's this people? And the question comes over and over again and as we begin in our chapter In chapter 21, what we're going to learn first is this, that God is not slow in keeping his promises. God is not slow in keeping his promises. Chapter 21 starts out like this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At that very time, God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Can you imagine this? This is an amazing picture. It's unbelievable. Finally, God comes through on his promise. And you might be going, but John, you said God's not slow in keeping his promises. He's not slow. But sometimes we think God is slow, but he's actually perfect in his timing. A lot of the time, we think God should do things this way at this time, and this is how it should be done. And we kind of have our plan for God. But you remember how that's worked out for Abraham? Not so good, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, you go back, and just, just a handful of chapters ago... Sarah came up with a plan because clearly God was incompetent. God could obviously not fulfill his promise because she was aging. Abraham was aging. And this whole thing wasn't working out. So she goes, God, I'm going to help you out. It was very generous of her, don't you think? And so she says, here's what we're going to do, God. And she, this isn't an actual conversation regarded in text. This is my filling in between the lines, okay, just so we're clear. But she goes to God. She goes, here's what we're going to do, God. I'm going to give Abraham... My maidservant, I'm going to give him Hagar, and she can be the surrogate for me. She can go in my, she can become pregnant in my place, and through her, you can give a, give this great nation that you've promised, this great people, you can do that through her. That was her plan, because clearly, from her perspective, God was either incompetent, or he wasn't powerful enough to actually follow through on what he said, and so she came up with her own plan, and, and. And obviously God rejected that plan and said, nope, that's not what we're doing. But then time continued to go on. Not just a year or two or three, but over a decade later, over a decade later, God comes again. And we talked about this you know, with the, the, the three uh, visitors that came to Abraham, one of them being God the Father, the two other being messengers that went on to Sodom, right, and, 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 and that whole story, but, and, and, and promised a year from now you will have a child, right? So God comes back and says, no, 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 I'm still going to fulfill my promise. It's still coming, but now there's a timeline. Here's your timeline. A year from now you're going to have a, have, have a child, and guess what? When God said it would happen, it happened. As a matter of fact, as you read the text and you look at what it says, there's three phrases in those opening verses that that are really important, right? The first one is this, as he had said, right? Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. In other words, God said it, the next phrase, which is actually the very next phrase, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And then the next phrase, at the very time God had promised him. God's not slow. He's not confused. He doesn't misunderstand the circumstances. He's not standing up there not paying attention. He's not caught up in his Nintendo Switch or whatever, you know, is distracting him from life, right? he's, He's not doing that stuff. He's paying attention. He knows what's going on. He knows how old Abraham's getting. He knows how old Sarah's getting. But Abraham had to go through a process of growth. In order to learn to trust God. And at the right time, God would deliver his promise. At the right time. God is not slow in keeping his promises. As a matter of fact, God is not just a promise maker, but he is a promise keeper. When God says he's going to do something, he always follows through. He always follows through. Think about how unusual that is. Think about how, used, how, how, how comfortable we are with being let down by people saying they're going to do something and not do it. Raise your hand if you ever said you were going to do something and didn't do it. Come on, just be honest, right? Yeah, and if you're not raising your hand, you liar, right? I mean, it's just the truth. I wish it weren't. I wish it weren't the truth. I wish I wish we were all capable of doing everything we said we were going to do, and except for when we say stupid stuff. I, I, I don't want to be capable of doing that, but but make you know following through on the promises that we make. I wish we were capable. We're just not. We're fallen human beings. We're sinful human beings, right? I love I love the cable company thing, right? You know, or the or the TV provider, internet provider, whatever it is in your home, right? you you know, I'll I'll hear people go, "Oh my goodness, Comcast is the." worst. I can't stand Comcast. They're terrible. They never follow through on what they're going to do. They have terrible customer service. And then they go over to CenturyLink. A couple months later, oh my goodness, CenturyLink's the worst. It's horrible. They never follow through. Their customer service, why? Because they're made up of a bunch of humans and can I just be honest with you? They all fail to follow through sometimes. They all do. I mean, we live in a world where not just companies because they're made up of people, but neighbors, friends, relatives, parents, children, whoever. Guess what? Sometimes we don't follow through. Is it sin? Yes, we're sinful. We need a Savior. Right? Guess what? God always follows through without fail, without fail. The reality is that we live in a world where people don't follow. As a matter of fact, when we find someone or a company or a product or whatever, and uh, and that person or that company follows through a little bit more than everybody else, we're blown away. We think they're amazing. Just a little bit more than everybody. We do. And uh, understandably so. But we serve a God who follows through every time, and we get mad at him because he doesn't follow through when, where, and how we want to. It's interesting, isn't it? See, God isn't just a God of promises. He is the God that keeps his promises. But the text goes on. Verse 6, and this is going to be a little bit of a side note as far as where we're going, but I I really wanted to point this out this morning. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that who said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, I want, did you hear that phrase by the way? Sarah said, God has brought me. It's okay to laugh. Right? I, I'm so blown away all the time. Christians sometimes, I don't know what it is about some of us Christians, man. I mean, we just we just gotta get so serious about everything. And you wonder why people just think we're boring because we're just like, hmm. you know, we kind of get our serious face on about everything in life. We can't laugh at anything. And, uh, and, and I just, can I just, God brought Sarah, laughter, laughter is good, right? And then it says, and people will laugh what? With her. If you cannot laugh at yourself, you need to get over yourself. I'm 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 just serious. Like you want you want a, a, a theology of laughter. Here it is, right here in Genesis chapter chapter twenty one, right. God brought Sarah laughter. Laugh a little bit. It's okay. Jokes are funny. April Fool's Day is fun. All right. Don't take it so seriously. God's in control. Amen. All right. We can laugh a little bit. That was kind of your side note. Okay. <laughs> But I couldn't help but laugh at the text too because here I am and it kind of paints this picture and I think we find humor in God's word. God not only brings Sarah laughter but then she explains why. Who would have said that said to, said to us that that Sarah's going to be nursing a child when she's really old? She's like 90 years old. She's going to be nursing a child. I mean, just stop for a second. Can you imagine when the child turns 2? Right? Can you imagine and the child starts running around, getting into everything. Come back here, boy. Come back here, boy. Like, all right. That's, I'm not making fun of old people, right? I'm just laughing at the reality of the situation that it was. It's just true. It's, it's, a, it's a humorous event, and yet it is filled with God's faithfulness to his promise. So there's seriousness in it. And yet God provides joy and laughter in the midst of it. Amen. But here's what we need to realize about this text, that what is happening here is is there's a realization that takes place for Abraham, and it's a really difficult one, because as he goes through this, he's going to come to face-to-face with some of the choices that he's made, and the plans that him and Sarah have made, and he's going to realize this, that our plans are made according to the flesh. Our plans are made according to the flesh. Now, here's, here's this one of these weird Bible phrases, right? When, when the Bible talks about flesh, generally speaking, it's in negative terms. In other words, you, whether, whether you're looking at the New Testament or the Old Testament, when there's this idea of the flesh, we're going to look at the New Testament and its understanding of... Um, of Ishmael and Isaac here in this text in a minute. But, but as you look at it, when it talks about something according to the flesh, it's talking about something according to the sinful fallen nature that has impacted the, the flesh, the physical, in the world that we live in. It doesn't use it in positive terms. It doesn't say, hey, the flesh is great. It says, hey, the flesh is not good. And so that's kind of how we're using this term here. It's a biblical kind of phrase and, 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 and usage of words. Our plans are made according to the flesh. The apostle Paul talks about it. He talks about it in in Galatians chapter 4, verse 23. And he's talking about Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael. This is is who he's talking about. And it says this, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. It's, it's, It's painting it in a negative picture. In other words, who's the slave woman? Hagar is the slave woman. That's who that Paul's talking about in Galatians chapter 4. And he's saying, he's saying, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Well, what does that mean? It means that when Abraham and Sarah, starting with Sarah, but Abraham was complicit, of course, and, and starting with Sarah, she came up with the plan. Abraham went along with it. Not good. And they came up with their own plan to help God out. That was according to the flesh. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. That was never God's intended plan. It wasn't what he wanted but that's what they did, right? In fact, all, all we can do is things according to the flesh. When we do things according to our own power, when we try to do things the way we want to do them, what we are doing is things according to the flesh. When we're coming up with our own, our own way that God can make something work out without appealing to him, without without running to His sovereignty without trusting in the Spirit to guide us and give us wisdom, without seeking those things, we're doing things according to the flesh. That's, what we're, that's all we're capable of doing It's things according to the flesh. Plans made and executed according to the flesh will always be of finite value. This is true in every area of our lives. James the half brother of Jesus talks about this when he he has he talks about business, right? He says you, so you might say I'm going to go here or I'm going to go there and I'm going to do business for this time period or that time of, that, that time period and I'm going to make money. But honestly, it's always if God wills it. If God wills it, Because we can make all the plans we want, but if it is not according to God's will, if it is not within his design of the way things are going to happen, then it's not going to happen. Because all we're capable of doing is making plans according to the flesh. Remember the story of Ishmael. He was a result of Sarah's fleshly plan to help God out. Sarah came to Abraham, gave him her servant to produce progeny. Abraham passively which is not good, went along with it. He didn't exactly put up a fight, right? Poor Hagar. Like, Let's be honest about who the victim is here. Hagar was a victim of a fleshly plan made by Sarah and Abraham's willingness to go along with it. This was not God's plan. God had a different plan. Here's what Ray Steadman says as he talks about this passage. He says this. He says, we can produce nothing but Ishmael. God alone produces Isaac in our lives. We can produce nothing but Ishmael. God alone produces Isaac in our life. Isaac is the child of promise. And we are incapable of making that happen. Here's what we come down to as we look at this text and and we, and we begin to think about how this all plays out. And this is it, you ready? You have to give up your plans if you want God's promises. You have to give up your plans if you want God's promises. How does the story play out? Remember the story, right? The story plays out. There's Ishmael, right? Then all these years later, there's Isaac, and she and and, and Sarah has Isaac. And you can imagine some of you grew up in, in, in mixed families. I did. I got brothers and sisters all over the place. Like it's hard to, you know, I, you've heard me say this if you've been around for a while. I'm the youngest, only middle only I'm the youngest, oldest, middle only child, and it's true. Like I, I, I'm all of them because I got so many stepbrothers and sisters that all over the place that it's kind of confusing, right? You grow up in a household where there are stepbrothers and sisters or half brothers and sisters or, 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 or something like that, and guess what that creates? Conflict. It just does. Even, even if God's at the center of all of it in the sense that He provides grace to that family, there's still conflict. We still struggle through it, right? There's still difficulty. You know, I always think back and, you know, my my mom and my stepdad got married when I was 13 years old. And and I always think back and go, go, wow, he had no idea what he was getting into because all my stepbrothers were younger than me. So he went from not having a teenager to having a teenager in an instant. He didn't get to grow into it. It was just there. Boom. And I was a hard-headed teenager. Like I kinda had my life figured out. I had the way I, I went about life. I had it figured out because I more or less had a single mom, right? And I kinda, you know, we kinda we had kind of established our relationship and our boundaries and, and how things worked. And 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 I had, okay, this is life, and now and then they get married and I got four younger brothers. What? I gotta share a room? Are you kidding me? I mean, my brother and I literally put a line down the center of the room, right? About what, you can't, you don't touch stuff on my half, I don't touch stuff on your half. And then, of course, you can imagine the fights, right? It was, because the door to get in and out was on his side of the room. So guess what he tried to prevent me from doing? Yeah, you're all laughing because you know, right? And we're stepbrothers, and he's used to being the oldest, and now he's not. As a matter of fact, I got a scar right here from a little scuffle we got into, broke my hand. I won't tell you what I was doing, but I had to get it rebroke. We'll just put it that way, okay? Because a couple weeks later, because I lived in a household where we didn't go to the doctor for just anything, let me tell you. Right? So I, I, uh, okay, I was punching him. All right. So anyways, um, (laughs) you know, I was 15 at the time. Cut me a little slack. Jesus was still working on me. Jesus is still just working on me. But anyways, but you know, I was punching him and I broke my hand and and it swells up and my knuckle disappears and 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 I was looking at it. And it's kind of funny looking, and I just kind of I just kind of squeeze it and went, oh, there's my knuckle again. And I'd go like this and it'd pop and disappear, and I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And I'd go like this and I'd kind of put it back in place, right? And uh, and so then, you know, and I was, I like to think at the time that I was a tough guy and I was a football player and all this stuff, so I'm like, I'm like you know, I had to tape my ankles and some stuff for football. So I thought, I thought well, I'll just tape it up. And so I go to, the, go to the bathroom, get some medical tape. You know, I tape up my hand. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just putting tape on my hand, right? Like, you know, I just tape, I tape it up and figure, all right, that'll be good. And we got charged $5 per punch or strike in our family. And so I just wanted you to know that that was supposed to cost me $50, that, that particular instant and, um, instance. And, um, and so two weeks later, I can move my pinky from about there to about there without pain. After two weeks, about that much. I don't know if you can even see me moving it. Like, I can barely move it. And so I go to my mom, and I go, Mom, I need to go to the doctor. I think I broke my hand. And she's like, you didn't break your hand. I go, Mom, I can't move my hand. And she's... she, she's like, you didn't break your hand. And I'm, I'm like, what do you want me to do? I'm hurt. It, it hurts really, really bad, you know. And finally, she takes me to the doctor, and we're sitting in. We get it x-rayed, right? And we're sitting in the doctor's office, and the door's right here, and my mom's right here, and we're kind of facing that way. It was a different day and time, and how medical things worked, but you know, it was like we were in it, it, literally in his office. It was like a clinic, and we were literally in his office, and the doors open, and the door across the hall over there is open, and uh, and she she leans over, and she goes, John Patrick, my middle name's Patrick. John Patrick, your hand better be broken. <laughs> this just gives you the idea kind of, you know, it's like we didn't go to the doctor for nothing, right? Like you go to the doctor, they're, you better be broken somehow, some way, right? Because we're paying for this, and and, and and I look over my shoulder, and I can see across the hallway into the other room, and there's this x-ray of a hand, and and, and the bone that is supposed to be like this is like this on my hand, and I just kind of looked, and I go, I'm pretty sure it's broken, <laughs> And we got it fixed, right? Like, but you can understand the tension that that creates in a family, right? You've got these brothers and sisters and things. Well, you've got two brothers. There's a half-brother. There's 14 years basically between the two, right? And, and, and he's looking at him, and all of a sudden, Abraham is, is treating Isaac and Sarah different than he's treating Hagar and Ishmael. How could he help it? It's just human nature. It's what people do. And guess what happened? Sarah gets upset. Sarah's like, you are not treating Isaac right. And Hagar and Ishmael, they're not treating us well. Things are not good. There is conflict. Abraham, get rid of her. That's what she said. And you can, I mean, this is, this is still Abraham's son. You say whatever you want about the relationship. It's Abraham's son. And if you're a parent, you know that feeling. Even when your, your son or your daughter messes up or they're, or, they're, or they're not being the best person in the world, you still love them, right? You still want what's best for them. Abraham wanted what's best for Ishmael. He really did. As you read the text, it hurts him. It hurts him. But, but God comes to Abraham and says, do what Sarah asks. And so he does. He puts some food together, puts some things together, and he sends off Hagar and Ishmael but he had to do it because he had to give up his plans if he wanted God's promises. He had to let Hagar and Ishmael go if he wanted what God was going to give him. How true is that for us? So often, and it's not even necessarily a bad thing. It's, was it a good thing that Abraham loved Ishmael? Yes! 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 It's a good thing. Are there good things that are good in our lives, but they are not what God wants for us? Yes. Do we have to give those up to get what God promises us? Yes. We have to give up that which is wrong as well, of course. That which is sinful, we have to give that up. We don't get God's promises and hang on to our plans. It's not how the, that's not how it works. But too often through life, and I've seen it over and over again, people go through life, and, they, and they, go, they want God on their own terms. They want a relationship with Jesus, but on my terms. Happens with kids and their parents all the time too, right? It's, you know, adult kids, of, and, and, they, and they, they're strifed with their parents, and they go just go, well, I want a relationship with my parents, but everything's got to be on my terms and nothing on theirs. Sometimes you have to give up what you want in order to get what God wants to give you. This is a really important principle as we understand our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 14.12 talks about about, uh, the way we think, right? It says, there is a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. Sometimes we think we've got it figured out, but in the end it leads to death. We need to trust God. Our schemes, our plans, our wisdom, our folly... In the eyes of God, it leads nowhere. Abraham had, Abraham had to give up Ishmael in order to take hold of God's promise in Isaac. You can imagine how difficult that might be to give up a child, even if it was a child you never should have had in the first place. It doesn't matter. That hurt's real. That pain is real. Verse 11 of chapter 21, Genesis. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Did you hear that? He loved his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you, because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. In other words, God's saying, I will take care of him. He's not yours to take care of at this point. You have to give it up, Abraham. Can I just tell you that's what it is to follow Jesus, too? This isn't just some Old Testament story with a nice principle in it. It's, it's so much more than that. I mean, this is what it is to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, Luke 14.33 says this. It says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, what, does that, what exactly does that mean? And, and, it, and it's really hard to figure out, right? Because, because we, it's not that we should go and literally sell absolutely everything we own, including the clothes on our back and walk around naked like Francis of Assisi did. Right? Like, that, that's, not, that's not necessarily what's, what's being said here. But is there anything, anywhere in your life that you hold of higher value than your relationship with Jesus? Maybe you ought to get rid of that. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's my spouse. Okay, you don't get to get divorced, all right? That's not what this is saying. But your relationship with God has to elevate so that it is higher, it is more important, it is more significant than that of your relationship with your spouse. Whatever it is in your life that you might hold as that thing, that you worship that instead of God, that's the problem in your life. Even if it's a good thing, your relationship with Jesus must come first. If you are not willing to give it up for the sake of following Jesus, then you cannot be his disciple. You have to give everything up. This isn't work salvation. The gift of salvation is free. But following Jesus requires sacrifice. As a matter of fact, that's what he did for us. Right? That's what he did for us. He emptied himself. The eternal divine son of God gave up everything he had. He gave up his high position. He gave up his status. He sacrificed his body. He was beaten. He was bludgeoned. He shed blood. Why? So that we might receive his righteousness so that we could receive that because we need it, because we need redemption. We need new life because we've been impacted by sin and evil and wickedness has worked its way into this world and into our lives. And we need the God of the universe to provide the way for us to eternal life. We need it. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He gave up everything. So when we look back at him and we see what he sacrificed, the way that he paved for us, right, so that we could receive the righteousness of God, so that we could stand before God, righteous, pure, and holy, knowing that we are that way, not because we've accomplished it, but because he has given it to us. But in the meantime, we sacrifice everything. Why? So that we can gain even more. Because the hope of Jesus Christ is in the new heavens, it's in the new earth, it's in eternity, it's in in life, and life abundantly, forever. Forever. Whatever we give up pales in comparison to what we gain when we follow Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. For the gift of salvation, for the gift of salvation of shed blood for the gift.